Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. So, hey, Dan, thanks for coming down. Hey, good to see you, Tara. Good to see you, Zach. Excited to be here. So, I wanted to invite you onto the show because I've worked with you on with some clients, and um, I think there's a great opportunity to to talk about what financial people like you actually do when you're working in a company. Because most people who start food companies do not have an accounting background, and so this whole world of accounting and finance is a pretty big black box to a lot of people. I, I like to help folks develop their own tools. And mm-hmm. I've helped a couple businesses with a template on a projected cash needs model. Mm-hmm. And that's where if you know that for every dollar of sales growth that you create, that's going to be you know nine cents a month for the next 12 months. And in order to do that, you're going to need to incur a certain amount of cost at different monthly periods. And it's going to be the worst at a given month, if that's September or December or April, whatever it might be, and say, gee, if we're going to increase our sales by a dollar next year, we're going to need a working capital increase of 70 cents or a dollar ten or whatever it is. But have that understanding of what that number is. And that way, after year one, you can look at it and say, boy, we were wrong. Mm-hmm. We needed a dollar thirty. What what did we miss? And then when you go through and look at it, well then when you say we're going to increase sales this year by this much, and you go through the exercise again, five years from now, when you're talking about increasing sales from six million to eight million next year, um, you're not going to miss by two hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, because you've got that process tightened. So it, it goes to having a tool, and, and one thing that you and I have talked about before. I'm process oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk mm-hmm. about how accountants and engineers tend to be process oriented. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs and salespeople sometimes not so much. Um, But if you have a process, no matter what process you pick, you can always be fine-tuning, improving, and going through the discipline of executing that process. So when I see folks that want to talk about their business plan, and they say, I don't have a business plan, whether it's as basic as a SWOT analysis, more sophisticated where they use the model business canvas, or where they use some different software package that produces a book of a business plan, I encourage and pretty much require clients that I work with to have some type of process to work on their business plan and move it forward. I personally like the model business canvas because it's simple and it focuses on what's your value add, your value proposition, and you can work around that. And that way you don't end up always plowing the same field or redoing the same math and you can worry about growing and developing that model and expanding it. And it gives you the discipline to work off of what you've built on in the past. And a working capital model works the same way, where if we do go through the numbers tease and maybe bring our accountant in to help or say, Dan, can you help us with this? And we go through and build a little bit of a model, it's important then to go through the exercise after a season to say, what did we miss on? What will we write about? And how do we project our working capital needs for next year? Right. I'm going to add another wrinkle to this working capital projection, why it's so critical. And that is for growing food companies, when you go into a new distributor, 
um, you tend to get a big jump in, in your sales, right? It's not an incremental increase because you just took on a distributor and they're going to take a stocking order. So you get this big order. You got to gear up to make the big order when you do that. And then you only get paid as that stuff starts selling through. And it can take weeks or months to sell through, right? So you all of a sudden, every time you go a new a food company goes into a new distributor, there tends to be these huge gaps in cash. So when I work with people in the food industry, I make them, when they're doing their projections, be incredibly um, accurate in projecting when they're going into a new distributor. So just having an assumption that, you know, receivables are going to be, you know, I don't know, 7% of sales or 50 or whatever, it's not good enough when you're having these leaps like this. True. Right. It, it, it really is misleading, actually, and, and from a cash perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's one of the things that kills food companies that when they're starting to scale up. In, in my early days, obviously, if you look at a large manufacturing business, gee, we're going to add a second paper machine to the plant. Well, obviously, right, that's a big right. chunk of change at one time. In a smaller food startup business, I think the, the key to look at is what is that pipeline filling cost and the timing on cash flowing out of that pipeline and how does it fit and into the model? And coming back into the pipeline because of the way distributors behave. So if you're it's looking... both sides. Exactly. So if you're looking at, we're going to develop a distributor in each state as we go and we're going to pick on, you know, have five or six new distributors each year, well, then that's going to have kind of a smoothing effect on it. So it's going to be more like a, a trucking company buying another truck. But if it's to that point where you talk about the steps where we're going to take on a multinational and we're going to distribute to them and it's going to take our sales up fourfold or tenfold or something. Yeah. It's a big number. It's a big number. And it, and the way that retail has gotten consolidated over the years, there's not there's just not you can't get that big before the new account is now not one store but 300 stores, right? And so it the Food companies grow in step functions now. They don't. The, the the days of being able to do this smooth curve for growth are gone. And, um, and I, I think, and from a cash perspective, that it really it really um, forces you to be very um, intentional about forecasting your cash usage. You've introduced me to a couple of clients that uh, mm -hmm. that are your clients that I've helped do the yeah. financial projection analysis on and. Within food, I've discovered a couple things to your point exactly that um, Amazon and Whole Foods, which are now one, and a couple of other distribution networks a few years ago were, boy, this is great. I can make my honey or my maple syrup product and put it out there and incrementally sell it as mm -hmm. I grow. And now if you want to get into those because they've got their stocking program and their warehousing program, you need to hit certain levels and then if you do want to go into one of their markets, you need to guarantee supply capabilities. So even the ones that kind of brought it down to a web-based, easy-access consumer market have now gone the other way, where if you're going to scale to Whole Foods, you need to really be prepared to scale in a big way mm -hmm. right away. Right. Um, and, and so that element's there. The other one that you see is mm -hmm. um, convenience foods, which mm -hmm. I think we've been involved with a lot a few years back, you could go to the local convenience store and say, mm -hmm. hey, do you want to stock this? And now more and more, they're either part of, you know, here in Wisconsin, 
quick trip just by PDM, uh, PDQ. PDQ, PDQ, yeah. And so it's like if you want to go into one store, you've just committed to going into several thousand. Um, so more and more we're seeing that situation where, yeah, are you going to be able to handle that cash flow step of filling right, the supply chain? Right, So financial planning is becomes critical, right, when you're a f- growing food company. And um, do you, because you you are uh, such a process-oriented person, do you have, when I say, yeah, you got to have a financial plan, what, what, how do you work with clients to develop something like that? Um, the, the one thing that I think about a couple of things, um, personal financial plans and business plans similarities are when you talk to folks that have gotten their finances improved or fixed or repaired, whether personally or professionally, there's a couple of rules. If you don't reconcile your checking account and get good finances at the end of every month and you don't know where you are, any road will take you there. You're lost no matter what. So first off, get to that point of having the books nailed down and having somebody go through it once a month. This is where we are. This is what we're doing. The other element they talk about in personal planning, um, the biggest tool they give people to help improve their personal planning is shopping list. It's kind of been proven out that if people just force themselves to have a shopping list, then they stick on the shopping list and they do so much better because of that. More important than any other plan. And I think within the business planning model, the same thing can happen. If you develop that financial projection going out 24 or 36 months, and it says on it that you're going to spend $892 a month for marketing, you're much less likely to sponsor the local softball team mm-hmm. because it's not related to your product right. than if you're just sitting around going, can we afford to do this and making one-off decisions? So I, I think the key is have good, accurate monthly financials, roll those into a financial projection going forward, and then live off of that projection versus actual. Why was it different? What did we do right or wrong? One thing that... Um, when I talk to folks about how they put that projection together, I like to talk about let's do the sales projection independent of everything else. Because if your sales projection is targeting an income level, then the sales numbers are backed into and don't mean anything. But if you truly do a sales budget based on this is where we plan to go and this is how we're going to get there and then drop off what you know about your costs and get down to the bottom and say we're in trouble, then it's useful and it's meaningful. The other thing that happens is how much detail do you put into the sales budget? Sometimes you get into sophisticated companies that use CRM tools that have a sales budget based on product SKUs with pricing changes and customers and salespeople. And then when they get to the end of the month, we exactly hit our sales budget. But Dan missed his sales target by 10% and Zach beat his by 8 And, you know, this all went into it. The more you have the ability to analyze what went right or wrong, actual versus budget, tells you how good you're doing at budgeting. So if you said, well, we budgeted 3% growth and we didn't get it. We budgeted 3% growth because we were going to get into this convenience store chain in Minnesota and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it did happen and we hadn't budgeted it. So when you talk about how to do the financial model, I think making sure that the numbers have some reasonable justification behind them, especially on the sales side, and then using historical norms 
for cost of sales and operating costs, unless you have a good reason to change them. And then at the end of every period, having the discipline to sit down and say, the accountant reviewed our financials, gave them back, this is what it looks like, and this is what we had budgeted. Why is it different? And if you're willing to take the time to do that, otherwise you're out there on the court and the scoreboard's shut off. Right. Are you winning right. or not? Right. Right. I know. It's like root canal, but it is so important to understand, <laughs> right, what, what you're doing in your business. It's, it's, it's Well, I, I'd argue that the data I know of, you're an accountant, so well, it's not root canal for well, you to do it, okay. but for but other, the, other people. The, the data collection on the individual transaction level, that is the root canal part. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have that part handled and have someone helping you put the financials together, the financial review, how do we do? How are we doing? Where are we going? That can be more like, you know, watching ESPN. Yeah. How, how, how it is on Monday. Uh, yeah, how it is on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're in a startup phase, you know, you're losing money typically. So there's this, there's a bit of a grueling thing when you're going through the numbers. Um, and, but it, you don't get better and make, you know, get the business to make money if you don't know why you're losing money, right? And so it's in this, it's in this um, process that we've been talking about that you can figure that out. And it also helps you to have objective, numerically based decision processes instead mm -hmm. of, I think we are ready to leave the incubator and go on our own. Or I think we're going to buy our own truck instead of, you know, based on what? Mm -hmm. Whereas if you do have that numeric understanding of what's happening in your business, you can make good, solid decisions. Because in most entrepreneurial base businesses, the most important use of time for the principal in the business, I hate to say is sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. Go sell. Go sell and create the problem in production and keeping track of it. So if they're sitting in the room trying to reconcile their bank account or figure out their costs, they're not going to have anything to keep track of pretty soon. So um, like I said before, don't let an accountant overcomplicate it. Make sure that you've got all three legs of the stool. And the first one that has to happen is get out there and sell, get your market going, get your base running. But you do have to have the structure in place to evaluate it. Okay. So you've had a lot of experience as a controller and, and that would involve working with banks. Um, so what do you think are some credibility killers for businesses <laughs> going to a bank? Um, backing up with that a little bit, um, when I was an auditor, the audits were pretty much part of bank requirements. And then when I went into private industry and you're a controller of a division for a public company, corporate takes care of the treasury function and they just tell you what you're going to get or not, which project's going to go. And then when I've worked more in the smaller business realm, um, when I was the CFO for a small public company, about a $10 million enterprise, or when I did the startups, you know, both of them were about $20 million, that is a different animal where you're working with the banks. And I think most bankers are also in that realm where they've got a product to sell and it's loans. So they aren't looking for a reason to not loan you money, but if you force it on them, they're going to have to look they're at gonna it. They're going to say no, right. <laughs> um, and, and I right. think that there's a couple of them that I've worked with clients on that jump out, and it's that if a client comes and says, this is what we're going to do, here's our 
quick and dirty presentation, and we're starting next week, and we need you to approve this. Get going. And that banker has a sense of urgency. They're going to run it through their due diligence process, but they're going to get it going. And if they come back and say, oh, I need these two things, and if you get that to them right away, their underwriter can keep it processed. Now, if you presented to the bank, we got to get this going next week and it's got to happen, and the next day they need these two things, and if you don't get it to them and they have to ask you again a week later, they've got a whole other stack of applicants. Mm -hmm. Yours went to the waiting for them to get back to me pile. Right. And I've worked with more clients than I expected to see who are struggling to get their financing, and I think an element of it is, they're not responding to the financial institution. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And I have this ridiculously long list that Tara's list of of things to prepare for a bank interview. Um, and and I force people to put things together ahead of time because I know what you said is true. I, they, you know, investment people are the same way. If you if you don't if you don't respond quickly, if you didn't if you don't have all the materials together, supporting materials, you're in some the lost soul pile. <laughs> um, I actually use your name a little bit in vain. Oh, God. Uh -oh. Um, when clients say, well, I don't need to do this. I'm not going to. Do this is what it has to be. And Tara Johnson requires this in all of her clients. <laughs> and it's been a godsend it's for me. It's been a oh, good. You can yeah, blame yeah. it on me. Um, the one yeah. that you gave me mm -hmm. um, was requiring all clients to create their own Dropbox account mm -hmm. and share a file for bank loan application documents and within that, they can create their own personal file that I don't see, and they can create the business file. And then if Banker A says, great business, but we're just not in that line anymore, and you have to go to Banker B, well, you can just give them access to the file. And the other element is, in all small businesses, there's the personal guarantee, and that means their personal financials are in place. And they don't and shouldn't want to share with you and me their cottage up north and their family trust right, fund and those right. kind of things. And if they have a folder in their Dropbox that I don't have access to, but when we say, gee, we're going to go to Bank C, mm -hmm. and all they need to do is share those files with that banker, boy, does that get the bank excited because they don't have to open a bunch of emails. They don't have to try and figure out when did they send me that and where is it and where did I start they can go in your Dropbox and say, oh, yeah, that is in there, or it's not. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful, I think. And and um, and it allows you to work, I call it a, an, an evidence base, right? So instead of having to spend a lot of time writing a big, long business plan, that sales and marketing, for example, um, you can put evidence of your sales and marketing, screenshots from your website or your actual price list and sell sheets, right? You don't need to write some big, long narrative about it. This is this is what they are, and it's up there, and they look at it. I think it works really well, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think there, there's a couple of those analogies out there when you talk about show me the onion, and if mm -hmm. I like it, I'll peel the onion, and you've got the documents there. But if I don't like it, I'm not going any further. So I think it's important to have, you know, when you watch a Shark Tank show and you see people come out on stage and they don't talk about, we're going to build a rodent reduction system that works in subterranean residential dwellings and we're going to sell it. with a They say, we're going to build mousetraps and sell them on Amazon. You know, right. it's simple, straightforward. So boil your business plan down so that 
people know what your value proposition is quickly. Mm -hmm. And if the banker or investor is excited about that value proposition, they're going to move very quickly to the financial model. Mm -hmm. If they're not, you're going to have to give them some more explanation as to why that's going to work or why it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so very concisely, and that's another reason I like that model business canvas, because it's kind of a, a one-page lean summary of what you're doing, value prop in the middle, suppliers on the left, outbound and customers on the right. And if they want more detail, then they can click into the detail in those areas. But if they like it, they're going to move quickly to the financial models. And within that financial model, another Tara Johnson mm -hmm. point is they like the sources and uses statement. As an accountant and a corporately trained individual, um, I was on an acquisition team at one of the public companies I worked inside of, and we had criteria when we were looking at who we're acquiring. And I learned from some folks that worked at places like GE and Honeywell and what their models were. But I did not see the sources and uses because I was in a corporate structure. Mm -hmm. Here, the bankers want to know what are you going to use the money for and what can they attach to as leanable assets. So it's critical that you've got the financial projection and that sources and uses model that ties to the cash flow element. Mm -hmm. And the projection is simply when we talked about the balance sheet and income statement, every column is an income statement. Underneath it is a cash reconciliation that feeds to the ending balance sheet for the period. Go back to the next column, income statement feeds down to the balance sheet. So whether you have a particular model or methodology or your accountant has one that they've put together isn't nearly as critical as having the detail there that the banker's looking for. Um, as often as not, the banker's going to have to take your model and put the data in theirs anyway. Um, but by having your model complete, you've made sure that the cash is going to reconcile and that the depreciation is going to tie out to the fixed assets and those things. So. Right. And a lot of times with our food companies, when we're helping them raise money, they're, um, there's going to be some things with it. Maybe they're buying equipment and then they're going into a new distributor and they're doing, you know, there's a bunch of things in the plan, right? And the, the, they don't all happen in the first month of the projection model, right? So, so the other reason that doing this projection this way helps is you also see um, the different sources of money when, they, when they're needed to come in because they may or may not come in all at the same time and they may not need to come in all at the same time. Some, some transactions, the banks will force it all to come in at the same time. Especially when you look, and this is another one of those food industry situations. Right. Um, and in Wisconsin, we've got DATCAP, which is great at helping you understand what do you need to do special with this building that you plan on buying so that you can use it for food production. So now, in addition to buying the real estate, you're going to have a 90-day or maybe even a year period where you're going to be putting up special different wall covering and refrigeration equipment and all these other Air elements. floors, surfaces, all kinds of things, and, yeah. And, and then when they come in, are... Are they going to have to be paid for in advance or a deposit put down on a lot of the mechanicals, the specialized tanks and vents and pumps and equipment? So you've got the timing of payment on the construction side. Mm -hmm. So if your projection with the bank is related to building a facility, 
and everything that goes along with that, that that's a whole other animal, right. a whole other layer of complexity. Right. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of our people that have, you know, we, oh, I, we work with people who are building out tap rooms or, or even bigger breweries, right? And, um, and, or a mi- or grain mill or something, and they all have that construction period. So um, that's a whole nother animal, as you said, um, to project, to help. And, and the lenders will want to see all the detail. Like you're going to have to have, you're going to have to have accurate numbers for every piece of equipment, right? And documentation from the vendor that says that this is what the equipment is and what it does, and this is the price. So there's a lot of documentation that goes into those build-out projects. And there's been a couple of clients that you and I have worked on together where I've taken that sources and uses mm-hmm. and turned the uses tab into a separate tab called capital assets mm-hmm. and created some columns and said, you need to get for everything that's more than some scope, $100,000, three quotes on this element mm-hmm. and some detail behind it. Um, and that way the banker can be certain that, gee, these are all very round numbers to the nearest 10,000. Do we really have a sense of it? Versus having those very round numbers and then next to them on the right, three quotes on the elements. Right. And again, that by having that financial element and expanding on it, nice thing with spreadsheets, you can keep adding tabs. Um, you can have that layer of the onion to go to and to tie out and reconcile and say, yes, we've got that detail if you want to see it, and here it is. Right. And it and the other element that comes into it is if you're building a financial presentation purely to get financed, and then once you're financed, you don't look at it again, well, then you've done it wrong. If it becomes part of your project management in a construction realm or in a growth or startup or buyout realm where we built this big financial model, are we on the path and are we using it, are we looking at the vendors we had in that uses tab, then you're gaining a lot of value from it on a strategic management side, not just on the element of getting financed. Um, I've been involved recently, you and I haven't talked about this yet, um, with a couple of peer mentoring groups mm-hmm. where, and I know you had mentioned something about it, and I, I've got a couple of them up in the Northwoods put together mm-hmm. now, Cool. where if you get folks that sit down at a table together, and they make sure that they're all entrepreneurial, kind of in the same place mm-hmm. and about the same size, personal balance sheet-wise, and can keep confidentiality but help each other. It only works if they all have their business plan in front of them because mm-hmm. otherwise it turns into a gripe session about employees or local government mm-hmm. or something else or mm-hmm. the Packers. But if you have a group like that sit down – it's kind of like when I sit down with uh, board of directors groups or advisory board groups. If you have that financial model in front of you as something to work off of, even a year later, it still grounds the discussion and keeps things moving. Yeah, and and I think one of the one of the things that um, that entrepreneurs resist in having investors is they usually have to have a board of directors once you bring in investor money. They want that level of fiduciary oversight. Um, 
and having that financial model is a, is such an important communication tool to to manage the relationship between you as the founder and your board of directors, right? Because they they want to see the the financials, but they're in this because they're investing in a company. They want to see the value of the company increasing and know how it, how it's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And that that financial model is what tells them that. And I have been involved in a couple different groups recently helping some folks with their board of directors, and I've got a couple articles I put out on my LinkedIn page Mm -hmm. on that, um, in that some folks get on a board of directors, and I encourage everybody to get involved and be part of a board if you can. You're not the jury. Mm -hmm. You're not grading homework. Mm -hmm. You're an advisory group to help the business. You do have authority, but you... If, if a board member goes to a board meeting thinking they're going to evaluate and look for problems, then all of a sudden every board meeting becomes a job interview for management and it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Where I have had boards of directors, you know, in, mm-hmm. in CFO roles and CEO roles, and if you require management to produce the board documents and send them out at least a week in advance, well, then will it be relevant? It'll be relevant to your long-term strategy, mm-hmm. and it won't be to current customer, current employee, current vendor things. So it's important to make sure the board stays long-term strategic and stays on that track. And I think if you have the right board that you keep your strategic business model in front of them, maybe you do a call monthly, maybe you don't, and you do a face-to-face quarterly, and you say, this is where we're at, this is where we're at on the business plan, and you email that out, and if somebody sends back, gee, I hope we talk about this during the meeting because I don't understand that, you as the CEO can decide, oh, yeah, I better be prepared Mm -hmm. to elaborate. If they throw it up at you in the meeting, it it doesn't work well. So I'm a huge fan of having a board of directors for strategic management, but a dysfunctional board is worse than no board. <laughs> right, right. And the pro- and the thing is that when you bring in investor money, as I said, you often don't have a choice. Like so, people think that raising equity, equity is free money somehow, and it doesn't come. You know, oh, those bank things they come with strings attached. Well, the strings attached with equity are even bigger because mm-hmm. you're giving up part of the ownership of your company. And they want rights as well as ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they come together, and so one of the one of the mechanisms for managing rights is the board of directors. So, um, you're bringing up a whole bunch of wonderful um, tips, I think, for un- for entrepreneurs who now suddenly have a board of directors and they've never been on one before. They have no idea what to. Be- do, like how to prepare, what to tell, right? And this whole idea of trying to manage your board so it remains strategic and not tactical, and they're not like, gee, my wife said, I, you know, you should have coffee flavor, so, you know, I expect mm-hmm. you next month to have coffee flavor, right? That, what, you know, where do you want them involved and where they don't? The, the, the difficulty I see is um, if you're in a not-for-profit situation or in a medical or a service business, CPA firm, law firm, the employees doing the work are also the board of directors, mm-hmm. and it gets very muddled and confusing. When am I wearing my operations hat and fighting fires, and when am I wearing my strategic board hat? But if you have a good board of folks like you, Tara, and me that have had to answer mm-hmm. to boards, mm-hmm. your board will be much less likely to 
beat right. you down and put you on the spot. Right, but and yet, devolve into rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. yeah but by yeah. the same token, they'll mm-hmm. do a great job of making sure you do keep your eye on the mm-hmm. ball of, gee, it's great that you're excited about that sales direction, but if you do that, you know, if you pick Ford, General Motors is never going to buy from you. Right, you know, right, and, things like that. That type of an mm-hmm. issue, and especially if you can bring folks into the board, and, and if you get an equity player, they're going to bring those kind of people to your board. Well, yeah, and they also, um, presumably, if you do that you're in, in food, you're raising more money later. I mean, the idea that you're going to raise all your money all at once and never need to raise money again, given how food companies grow, that's not a realistic assumption. So the other great thing about a board is that those people – Will network with their own and you know their own investor friends and help you. They also bring credibility f- to a bank lender mm-hmm. um, because because you're submitting to fiduciary oversight of a board. So so there are a lot of there are a lot of benefits and there are a lot of there's a lot of learning though for entrepreneurs and um, you know and I I had run a company that was very mature before I did Terra's Way so we had a board. Uh, but that was a company that was kind of in incremental growth maintenance mode. It was not the same kind of board as an investor board in a startup that you want to see exponential growth, right? Mm-hmm. The, it, it's a different thing. So, Well, um, when you talk about a lot of entrepreneurs, I don't need a business plan. I just need to keep growing the business. Mm-hmm. And the question I like to ask that type of entrepreneur is, what's your exit strategy? Mm-hmm. And backfill your strategic plan to that. Mm -hmm. And that way, when you are working with an acquisition-based equity board, it can be very open about the idea that, gee, Dan or Tara, whoever is not going to be here forever, and this is where we're taking the model, and this is the direction we're going, it makes it a lot easier Mm -hmm. to work when there's transparency and the air is clear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So have we missed anything? I think we've, we've talked about a lot of things that I think are super useful for people. A couple of the other items I wanted to make sure we hit. In today's environment, there are so many competitive support tools that if you decide I'm not going to use that and your competitors do, you are going to lose. Mm-hmm. So whether it's calling DATCAP and saying, we're going to expand our food production area. Can you send somebody else and tell us what to do? There's free consulting service. Mm -hmm. Someone like myself for the SBDC, free to the recipient. As long Mm -hmm. as we can prove out through the SBA grant program that we're creating capital infusion and job creation, I don't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. Why not take that on? Wibbick, I have a relationship with Mm -hmm. Wibbick. I know you interviewed On, and he Mm -hmm. and I have worked on a couple Mm -hmm. loans together where here's another group that's going to provide you free support service to get you into QuickBooks and do your record keeping, take advantage of that. Um, So on the consulting side, whether it's SBDC, WIBIC, SCORE, some of the other UW programs, tech college programs, there are resources out there Mm -hmm. that are going to help you at no cost other than your time to be a prepared entrepreneur. Once you get to the financing side, um, within SBDC, I'm now part of what's known as the capital access team here in Wisconsin. So if it's a larger project with multi-tier equity or multi-tier debt or just plain large, um, that's when I get pulled in outside of the northern region um, on the capital access projects. And what I'm seeing more and more is 
it's not just Foxconn. <laughs> Everybody that's starting a business in Wisconsin is saying, well, I'll stay in our town, but what have they got for me? Mm-hmm. And whether it's tax incremental financing, local economic development grants and loans, regional economic development grants and loans, statewide programs. Um, There are so many of these programs out there that if you're not willing to take them on and a competitor does and it gets down to being who's going to survive, you're not going to get there. Mm -hmm. So um, I know up in the Northwoods there's a sense of pride of I don't need, you know, things that are free. Yes, you do, and they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. That, that's one that we hadn't really talked yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I think the other thing I underscore with people is that um, raising money, even like 250000 that level of money, I rarely see that happen just from one source of money in a food company because money has gotten more complicated and the options are more, there are more options for everything. And so most of the time, um, a project involves more than one source of money. And that's the optimal way to finance the project. Um, It also is the one that makes it feasible to get financing. Um, and the probability that an entrepreneur can do that without help from somebody like you is low, honestly, or me. So that's why we do what we do, right, Dan? And, and when you get to those situations where you've got some local Main Street grant and some economic development loan and a regional economic development financing and then the local bank doing the operating line, but an SBA loan to go along with, and you put all these together, and they're all going to work together, and it's going to come together, but they all want first position financing. (laughs) And and you've got to sort through that to Mm -hmm. decide who has first position on what, what are the different loan covenants and criteria, and is this workable, and get those different funding sources to come together and say, yes, this works, and yes, this makes sense. Right, and sometimes they... Sometimes they're more creative thinkers than others, right? And so sometimes just having another person like you involved to think, have you thought about this when you're working with various lenders um, who understands their world, right? Um, You can help them come to a solution that the client all by themselves could not have gotten them to. And the other piece that you know, what we talked about for outside tools for now is very mm-hmm. generic. Right. But then once you get into specific industries, there are different groups all over the state on manufacturing or forestry or transportation. And within food, um, they all have Terry Johnson all over them. <laughs> but uh, um, Brad has the, the, the Food, food and, and Beverage, Beverage Association. Association yeah. and. I've worked with his clients, mm-hmm. a lot of them on their accelerator mm-hmm. program, and that's great. And Brad is an incredible resource for mm-hmm. branding and product evaluation to have him in. And then we've got Zach here with the, mm-hmm. helping you with the Edible Alpha program and some of the things involved with that. And then the DATCAP team. And within food in Wisconsin, there are a lot of resources. The USDA has a lot of grants and funding programs um, I think to simplify it, it's pretty much it really should be producer or farmer owned. It needs to be edible. You know, they don't like to do furs and mm-hmm. leather products, and they like export a lot. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a food model that can turn on those lights, 
the USDA has a lot of great programs, mm -hmm. and I've been involved in over a half a million dollars worth of those. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of the numbers right now in total um, through USDA programs. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there's a lot of tools, and the key is to get out there, network a little bit, talk to people and find which ones are there. The, the other element with that, and you've got mm -hmm. me thinking, is the idea that the more rural I get, in Madison, everybody's all about, look what I'm going to build. Right. But when you get out in the woods, oh, I can't tell anybody about this or they'll steal it. Right. So you've got all these great ideas that are never going to happen. Mm. And the news flash is, as soon as you commercialize it, somebody's going to try and steal it anyway. Mm -hmm. it's, it's called benchmarking. Right. <laughs> you know, the Toyota Camry is based on the Ford Taurus kind of thing. So whatever your great idea is, get out there. Talk to people, get resources, and they're going to say, "Oh, you need to talk to Tara Johnson." Mm -hmm. And Tara's going to say, "You need to talk to Dan." Right. And Dan's going to say, right. "You need to talk to," and get right. that happening. I see so many folks in food that are scared to share or ask for input because they're worried somebody's going to steal their great smoked sausage cheese curd combo. Right. Deal. Right. Yeah. That's that's such a great um, great comment because. Um, I there was there's a woman Sonia Neuenhouse who who um, founded a series. She's a serial entrepreneur in green things in Madison, and I heard her speak once um, to a class about her philosophy about new product development and being a serial entrepreneur. And she said, early on in the ideation process for the business, she would go out and talk to customers right away. And I said aren't you afraid that that's going to, you know, that other people will steal your idea? And she said something really interesting, which was, you know, a lot of people say they want to be entrepreneurial and they say they want to start something, but very, very few people actually do. And she said, you know, I think the data, it's something like 5% of the population is actually an entrepreneur, right? So it turns out you can talk to a lot of people and it makes no difference because they actually really aren't going to start anything. And, and what you give, what you gain from that is a huge amount of insight in the beginning about your idea and how viable your idea is at a time where you can still change it really easily and you don't haven't invested a whole bun bunch of money into it. Uh, 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 exactly. The entrepreneurial process and the folks willing to do it, if you study entrepreneurs, um, they're very young. Well, once you've built a personal financial statement, you're going to sign a personal guarantee no matter if it's I'm broke and I've got student loans or I've got you know a couple houses paid for and cars and toys. So there are folks that might be excited about your idea and would want to steal it, but they're not going to take that personal risk. There's other folks that aren't ready. Um, I'm a big Elon Musk fan mm -hmm. and I love a lot of the things he talks about, you know, or Simon Sinek with the be with the why, not just the how. Um, but uh, Elon Musk gave a tour of his new mega factory to a bunch of college students who were in some kind of entrepreneurial program. And somebody asked the question, what's it like to be an entrepreneur? He said, it's a lot like eating and swallowing glass. <laughs> and if you're not really passionate and excited about your product, go get a job with somebody else. Right, go work for somebody else, yeah. And in a lot of cases, you make way more money working for somebody else. But you don't get the... You don't get the experience. So this is, you know, me speaking um, from my own experience. You don't get the experience of having had an idea and creating something 
really great and impactful. Um, and then watching it fly like my children flew. There's something incredible about that experience, but it is not for everybody and not everybody is going to do it. Well, thank you so much for coming. I think this is going to be incredibly useful to a lot of people who are our listeners. So thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, again, I'm out on LinkedIn if anybody's got any questions and I can't thank you and Zach enough for putting this together. Terrific. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.